up, everybody? Man, I'm excited to cover this final battle, the war to end all wars, so to speak, and the seven years that follow. Yes, if you are not familiar, you might be surprised to find out that there is another seven-year period after the thousand-year reign of Christ. You know, when people get an abbreviated or a Cliff Notes version of the end times, or just general studies of the end times, this extra seven-year period is often left out and passed over, not to mention the window of time that exists between uh, the end of the thousand years and the start of the seven-year period. Now, we'll cover more on that later, and we'll cover more on this seven-year period in the next episode as well. So we will pick up today back in Revelation, where we left off in chapter 20, uh, at this point, we are at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And, of course, Christ is still reigning, and the kingdom is still there, but the thousand-year block of time that was designated uh, for that, for a certain purpose, it comes to an end. The time period for the millennial kingdom is officially over as far as that thousand-year block of time. Now it is time for Satan to be set free once more so that he and all unbelief can be destroyed forever. Revelation 20, 7 through 9 says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. And we'll come back to that. And to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Okay, there are several points to be made here, but at the same time, this is all John says about this final this final event. You know, it's practically the final event in human history. So, like before, it is because it is already written somewhere else in the Bible. And that somewhere else is none other than the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39. So, if you haven't checked it out, Ezekiel chapters, I believe 33 through the end um, or chapter 48, that tells all about the millennial kingdom and what comes after the millennial kingdom and all that stuff. It's, it's fascinating. So, but let's go ahead. Now, let's jump into some of these points that, that John is making here. John lets us know that the thousand year uh, time frame of the millennial, the millennial kingdom will come to an end and then Satan will be set free to tempt the Gentile nations of the world and gather them for a final battle. So that right there already tells you that there is a time period beyond the thousand years that is designated for the millennial kingdom. And there's a, there's a, a, there's a time period between the end of that millennial kingdom or end of that thousand years and the great white throne judgment of God, where all the uh, dead or the unbelievers are judged before God. Now, the fascinating point that will really get your mind racing is the seven-year period that I will talk about um, more later and um, mostly tomorrow on the next episode. Um, the fascinating thing is if you look at it, uh, we can conclude that the thousand-year reign or the thousand-year period ends and then Satan is released to provoke and tempt and deceive the nations of the world into attacking Jerusalem at this final battle, Battle of Gog and Magog. Well, at that point, when he's released, there's a block of time that we have no clear uh, distinction or clear indication of how long it will be, but there's a block of time when that thousand year uh, 
period ends, that he gathers all the nations for this battle and prepares them and all that stuff. There's a block of time in there between that thousand, end of that thousand years and the beginning of the seven-year period that we will talk about more later. So Ezekiel will tell us a little bit about what how long that time could potentially be, but it's not clear. So you'll see when we get to it. Now, I haven't found any details, like I said, that indicate how long that time will be, but Satan will have to have a decent amount of time to tempt the the world and many nations, you know, because he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. So he can only be in one place at a time. And yeah, he, he will likely recruit, you know, people to help him spread this deceit and this lie and, and all that. But still, you're talking about possibly trillions of people, so to speak. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of people and a lot of nations that he's got to, rally to his cause so to speak you know so i'm sure that you know he'll like i said he'll be recruiting people to help him spread this lie and this deceit and 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 rally these people but nonetheless it will take a decent amount of time for that to happen so john says that the armies of the world that satan deceives into rallying behind him for this full-on attack on jerusalem and the temple is like the sands on a seashore so we know that reference really just means that it's too numerous to count. That there's no way to to you couldn't count that many people. It's it's beyond that point. So Ezekiel says they're like a cloud covering the land. Now John says they marched across the breadth of the land, so we know it will take some time to get there. Then he says that they surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves, and we know that is Jerusalem. Now regarding Gog and Magog. As it pertains to this event, you know, in this this portion of you know history, so to speak, or this portion of what is to come, should I say, as it pertains to it, Magog is an area likely referring to Eastern Europe, including Turkey and that kind of area. But Gog is referring to an actual person. That is why Ezekiel refers to it as Gog from the land of Magog. Ezekiel thirty-eight two said the Lord tells Ezekiel, he says, "Son of man." Set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So we know that it is an actual person. So what I see here is that Satan will deceive and recruit this person referred to as Gog from the land of Magog. And that person will rise up and help Satan gather an army too numerous to count. The reference to Magog really just indicates that it will be many nations. I mean, it is talking about a certain territory or land, but the more important point is that they rally a lot of nations, uh, and they're all Gentile nations, but they rally a ton of Gentile nations to the to the cause that Satan has, this evil plan uh, to go and march on, on Jerusalem. You know, like I said, like always, Satan always enlists people to help him carry out his evil plans and this will be a massive amount of people so like i said it will take a lot of time because if you're building an army of let's just say trillions i mean even if it was hundreds of millions you're building a massive army and they have no clue about war you're having to to get them prepared for this battle and then they got to march across the land and it's going to take a long time so it could be years now, the Bible doesn't say, but it is likely that when Satan is locked away, just as just a side note, that when Satan is locked away, so are the demons. 
And that is because, you know, if Satan's locked away so he can't tempt the world, then surely the, the demons aren't running around causing havoc either. Where they go, uh, it doesn't really say, but I'm sure they're, uh, they're sent somewhere, you know, if not locked away with Satan. Now, why is Satan bound? Why was he bound in the first place only to be let go again? Why didn't God just throw him in the lake of fire with the Antichrist and the false prophet to begin with? Like I said before, once you enter the lake of fire, there's no coming back from that. If Satan was thrown in there after the tribulation, he could not be released to fulfill his purpose or God's plan. So what is the purpose? The millennial kingdom is a time that God uses to fulfill his promise he made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Um, so God uses the millennial kingdom to fulfill this promise that he made to Abraham, you know, their forefathers. And he also added to under David. Now, that one day Israel and all its people would be gathered to inherit the land he promised Abraham. And they would live in peace for generations you know, with no enemies, the glory of God would dwell among them, that's Jesus, and that they would be the nation raised up above all nations, and they would live in plenty. The wealth of goods and their abundance would be second to none. God uses the millennial kingdom, kingdom to fulfill that promise to the letter. I am grateful he does, though, because it served to, re, to remind us that he is a God of his word, and his word can be fully trusted. It is more certain than the sunrise or even your next breath. Also, during this time, Jesus rules with an iron scepter and controls sin under his perfect rule. He doesn't allow it to grow. If Satan was free to roam around tempting man and deceiving man, it would undermine the rule of Christ and the peace that he establishes during the kingdom. Think of it like this. Scripture refers to Satan as the father of, of all lies. He is the father of lies, period, the deceiver of nations. God cannot lie, but Satan is the father of all lies. Starting from the garden, Satan is the one who introduced the first lie into human history. And every lie or falsehood since then has been a product of Satan and his influence. Without Satan, the world would have only known truth. So Jesus has Satan locked up to keep him from interfering with the rule of Christ so that the promises of God can be fulfilled regarding his people. Also, God promised Israel peace and protection from their enemies. But how can they know and believe God is doing that when everything is under the perfect rule of Christ? There is no fighting, no war, uh, no killing during that time. Israel has no enemies. They are safe. So after the promise he made to Abraham is fulfilled, talking about this thousand years, he allows Satan to be turned loose again for a couple reasons. Everyone with a natural body must be tempted and tested just like everyone has been from the time of Adam all the way to, to now. So then Satan will be used to gather this massive Gentile army to come and attack all the people of Israel at, you know, that are at Jerusalem. This is so God can show them that he is fulfilling his promise to always protect them. On that day, God will allow an army to gather against Israel, an army too numerous to count. So when they look out, they will see an army like a sea of people, too numerous to count, and it will probably confuse them and overwhelm them. 
But this is so he can show them that he is the mighty one of Israel who keeps his word and protects his people. That gives me chills just, just to think about it. But think about this. When, when they see this, God allows this to come. He allows this to happen so that he can show them that he can and will protect them just like he promised. The people around Jerusalem will be confused and bewildered at the sight of this massive army with weapons you know, that is surrounding Jerusalem. They've never seen war or weapons of war because they were done away with and they have only known peace throughout their natural lives. No one will know how to wage war or make weapons because they have never known it or had a need for it. They have no understanding or comprehension of war. And that's hard to believe, you know, for us, since that is something we know all too well. You know, someone will have to teach them how to wage war and make weapons. And that is what Satan will do. That's what he will instigate. Ezekiel shows us that the weapons will be made primarily of wood. And that is because Isaiah 2.4 tells us that the art of war was forgotten during this time. And all metal was fashioned into other things like farming tools. Also, if you have time, check out Ezekiel 38 and 39 as it pertains to this final event. It will give you a lot of detail. Ezekiel 38.4 says, I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Verse 5 says they all have shields and helmets too. It would seem that some of these... Uh, tools or weapons or uh, armor, things like that. Some of these things that they have will be made of metal, obviously. I can't imagine them running around with wooden swords uh, or a wooden helmet. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I imagine there'll be a couple things that are fashioned out of metal, but the majority of all their weapons, spears, shields, you know, clubs, anything like that, it'll all be wooden. And that will make sense when we start covering the seven-year period that comes after this battle. And you'll see what I mean when we get to that. But Ezekiel does indicate that they will be adorned splendidly. So even though they have never, they've never been in battle, they don't even know what war is, they will be suited up to the best of their ability. That is because Satan will give them the knowledge of how to do that to the best of their ability with the resources they have. Now, Ezekiel tells us that God will turn them around and put hooks in their mouths and bring them out, meaning God will cause them to come out of their land. He will provoke them uh, to come out of their land, and he will cause them to march on Jerusalem and surround it, ultimately invading the land of Israel. So tomorrow we will look at what Ezekiel says about the invasion and how it comes to be, as well as the destruction of all unbelief. There's a hint to the time frame of this period uh, the period talking about the time that Satan uses to gather up this army. Also, the animals and birds are called on again to assist in the cleanup, so to speak. And there is the seven-year period that begins after the invasion of Israel, known as the Battle of Gog and Magog. So after that battle, there's a seven-year period we'll talk about tomorrow. Uh, we will take a look also at the purpose of the seven years, and that will lead us to the end of human history as we know it, where Satan is defeated for good, and then we will get to the judgment of God against all who refuse to you know, put their faith in Christ. And so the dead are judged at that point. Then the new heaven and new earth, and Eden is restored. So there's a lot to cover, um, and it's going to be super cool, but... Hang in there with me. Join me tomorrow as we wrap up the final details of this battle 
and the seven years that follow. God, this journey and study on Revelation and what is to come has been so rewarding and such a blessing. I pray that those listening have been uh, have been blessed and will continue to be blessed by the study. I read your words surrounding the study and all I see is grace. All I see is a God who is beyond words. All I see is when sin encounters grace, grace wins every time. I see a God who is faithful. His word is true. I see a God who is just and will punish the wicked who set their hearts against him. I see a God who will allow you to face a problem bigger than you, bigger than yourself. And it may be very overwhelming, but he will allow you to be surrounded with no defense just so that he can show you that he is the mighty one who watches over his people. He is the mighty God who saves. He is your shield and fortress and he fights for you. I'm grateful, uh, God, that you are my defense. Your word says in Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Sometimes, you know, you bring storms into our life or gather our enemies against us so that we can be reminded of your promise so that we can be reminded of you, who you are and the power that is in the name of Jesus we exist for your glory God so let us praise you with every breath amen